Hi, and welcome to this episode of Policed the Beat, the side companion series to Policed in Ireland, where we look at news, events, research and activities related to policing. Today, I am really delighted to be joined by my colleague, Professor Yvonne Daly, um, who is Professor of Criminal Law and Evidence in DCU. Um, thank you for joining us, Yvonne. Delighted to have the opportunity to chat, Vicky. Um, and good to note your promotion since the last time you were on. Thank you. Um, so we're going to talk today about a few different things that relate to the rights of detainees in a police station. Um, and this is based on research that you and I have been doing and that you have been doing with some European colleagues as well. Mm-hmm. Um so just to start, like, obviously, this is always that kind of wide-eyed awakening moment when you say to people that what happens in the movies and the TV, that when you're arrested, you always get your lawyer. That's not actually how it happens at all. Um, so could you start by explaining to us what rights do we have to have a, lo- a lawyer if we are detained? Yeah, absolutely. You're right about the movies and TV. I, I spent... You know, as a bit of a nerd in my teenage years, I spent a lot of time watching the bill and I had presumed from the bill that uh, when you're arrested, you know, a lawyer would be immediately provided to you and could sit with you throughout the interviews in the guard station. Um, but th- that uh, wasn't the case until very recently that you could have your lawyer present yeah, with you throughout the interviews. And the system is quite different in Ireland uh, as it is um, in England and Wales. So you are entitled to have access to a solicitor, you have a constitutional right of access to a solicitor during a period of pretrial detention. And traditionally, I suppose, from sort of the the early 90s, when that right was first recognised onwards, that was recognised as a right of reasonable access to a solicitor, which didn't include having the solicitor with you during the interview. So you could speak to your solicitor in advance, get their advice and so on, but you were on the on your own in the interview uh, with with the interviewing guardie. And that changed, that practice changed um, back in 2014 on the back of a case called Gormley and White, uh, which didn't specifically recognise the right to have your solicitor present in the interview. That wasn't part of the facts of of that specific case. But there was an inclination there, a suggestion that this is how things are going at a European level. European Court of Human Rights has always been very concerned about access to legal assistance as part of the right to a fair trial, particularly if there's going to be any interference with the right to silence, um, which we can talk about maybe a little later. But there was a feeling that, you know, this is where things are going in terms of the European Court of Human Rights and also in terms of the European Union, which had issued a directive in relation to access to legal assistance. Um, So in Ireland now, let's say if you're arrested, you can uh, have reasonable access to a solicitor. And if you would like that solicitor to sit in the interview with you, that's allowed as well, though it hasn't actually been technically recognised as part of the constitutional right of access to legal assistance, and there's no statutory provision for it either. It's it's just being allowed to happen um, for the past uh, five or six years. Yeah, because it was a pretty mad thing. That decision came out, and then like two weeks later, the DPP wrote to everyone and said, let the solicitors in, and literally the next day, solicitors were starting to attend interviews. Like, it was a pretty crazy situation. Yeah, it happened really quickly, and it was something I think that, you know, people have been saying for a long time, that this should be a part of the right. There had been a couple of cases, um, particularly a case involving a, a juvenile suspect, uh, where they had tried to push the issue, I suppose, and um, the, the Supreme Court were not returning on it. Um, and uh, it, ultimately, this decision, as you say, came from the DPP's office, really, a kind of not the recognition of a right, not even an entitlement, really, but just saying, well, let's let's let this happen now. Um, and uh, it, there had been a working group looking at how it could be resolved and so on. Um, but yet yeah, the decision came in, in an unusual way. Um, and it was something, I suppose, that solicitors suddenly then had to get ready for. And Gardi likewise, had to get used to the idea of having solicitors in the interview. Um, and there were, I think, some sort of teething issues as to how it would all work. What, what was the exact role of the solicitor in the interview? Uh, how, how much could they interject? Could they object to questions? Were they just there only to advise their client or could they have a more engagement and, and nobody, I think, initially was exactly clear what the rules of engagement were. Um, and about a year or so later, the, the Law Society came up with uh, some guidance for solicitors and, and uh, the Gardaí put together a code of practice uh, as well. And, and the two documents are 
similar to some extent, but differ in a couple of respects as well. But there was some effort to, at least then to say, well, look, these are these are the rules of engagement. This is what the solicitor can and can't do uh, when they're present uh, in the interview. And so I'm just going to say it again to be clear. So everyone has a constitutional right to talk to a lawyer and that can be face to face in a guard station um, if you're detained. Um, and the system now permits your lawyer into the interview, but it's not a constitutional right or there's no statutory basis for that, as you've said. Um, but it's actually something that and we, we've written about this. It's hugely important to have the lawyer in the room for all sorts of reasons, um, like obviously to pick up on anything bad that might be going on or to explain to you what the consequence of something might be, a question being asked, um, but also increasingly um, you know, we're looking at things like cautions or restorative justice mechanisms. And a lot of cases, just a lot less cases are going to trial. So what happens in the interview isn't being tested in front of a judge in the same way. And so having the lawyer there um, becomes all the more important to make sure that everything's being done right. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's absolutely right. I mean, Various research has been done and there's various publications out there that suggest, and I agree with this, that the the centre of gravity of the criminal justice process has moved backwards from the public arena of the courts uh, back into the sort of the private confines, really, of the Garda station. And what happens there is much more important now than it would have been in the past. Um, And as well as what you've said about restorative justice and so on. Uh, something like 92, 93 percent of people plead guilty um, when they're you know, prosecuted, when it gets further down the system. And so we, we don't they don't get an opportunity to aerate, I suppose, in public exactly what happened in the Garda station, what questions they were asked, were they all appropriate questions, you know, how they were treated uh, and so on. So, yeah, what happens in the station uh, can now be very decisive as, as to what happens overall in, in the process. Um, and, you know, as a as a lay person uh, brought to the station, whether for the first time or, or whether you've been in there before or not, you know, it's it's uh, it's um, a difficult environment to be in. There's maybe on the one hand, maybe a lot of information being given at you and it can be hard to let's say you don't have the solicitor with you. It can be hard to recount and, and be clear on what's happened and what's gone on and what advice you should have for the next interview. And on the other hand, there can sometimes be very little information being given to you outside of the interview room. In terms of disclosure, that the guardie like to um, have a spontaneous reaction within an interview to information that they're putting to the suspect, um, and so if your solicitor isn't with you in that moment, you don't necessarily know what their advice would be. You know, you could have had the the interview, or you could have had the consultation with them and advice as to what you should do in the interview. But if the interview goes off in a sort of unexpected direction, and you don't have your solicitor with you, again, very difficult to. Pre- to consider what's the best option here um, and and to as, as a person who hasn't been involved in any way let's say in the criminal process before it can be difficult to imagine ahead to if I want to raise let's say a particular defense in my trial later do I need to say that now or is it okay to remain silent let's say and not answer these questions you know, how's this all going to play out later whereas the solicitors have that experience and can advise somebody and say, you know, let's do this now, or this is my advice in this circumstance. And they have the objectivity, because let's not forget, you've been arrested. You know, you're in this insanely stressful situation. Your head could be in all sorts of places. You might be really worried about the person that you're supposed to be caring for, or worried about the fact that you haven't turned up at work, and are you going to be fired? And, you know, or you could have an addiction issue, and you could be suffering withdrawal from that. And these are really, really important issues that, like, again, just that need for an objective um, person that's on your side to be there um, aiding you. Yeah, it's an so, equality of arms issue as well, you know, because the, the, the Gardaí, uh, particularly now very well-trained Gardaí in terms of interviewing and so on, uh, are there and they have the power of the state on their side. Uh, and you as an individual person have been detained, your, your liberty is curtailed uh, and you're there and questions being put to you and so on. Uh, it's really important to have somebody um, who has the, the legal knowledge and advice, but is also just a sort of almost like a support uh, on your side of the table to some extent. You're not totally alone. 
And we've heard a lot. I mean, I think people often have this image of somebody who's been arrested dozens of times and sure, sure, they know what it's all about and it's easy for them. And that's absolutely not the case. Like all of our lawyers that we speak to would tell us that very clearly. And I want to move on to that because so we've done you and I have done a lot of work in in terms of training solicitors on attending um, Garda Station interviews and Um, Related to that, we did a research project where we went around the country and we interviewed 44 um, solicitors that mostly do criminal defence work. Uh, So solicitors that are regularly going into the stations and who are on call weekends, um, dealing with all of this. And there was so much that came out of those conversations. But one of the really interesting things that we focused on in an article that's coming out later this year in the Journal of Law and Society is how the lawyer gets chosen, which seems like such a tiny thing that you wouldn't even stop and think about it, but actually turned out to be a really big thing when we spoke to the solicitors, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if if you are arrested and you don't already have a solicitor, you you don't know who to call, what actually happens? Like, how how does that process, uh, how do you get a solicitor as such or who selects the solicitor? And and how? yeah, it it was really interesting because this wasn't when when we set out to do the research, you will remember, this wasn't necessarily an issue that we were trying to get information on, but it came up in almost all of the interviews that we had with, with the uh, with the solicitors as, as being um, uh, an area lacking in organisation, shall we say, to, to say the least. Yeah, so we're going to chat through some of the issues around that. So the way it is supposed to work, and again, remembering None of this is properly regulated, like the regulations talk about you write a lawyer or whatever. But what's kind of been agreed pretty much between the Law Society and the guards is that the Law Society maintain this list. So any solicitor who's willing to attend guard stations um, or respond to those calls puts the name in the list, says where they're willing to go, all of that kind of thing. And so the Law Society maintain this list. And the idea is that when you're arrested, you say, I want a solicitor. The guards will give you the list for the relevant area and you pick this lister off the list and they phone them, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's it's an online list and it's even sort of fancier than that in that if you're supposed to be able to click on it and each time you click on the page, a different solicitor should randomly come to the top of the list. Uh, so there's, you, you know... It it has a sort of an inbuilt system to ensure that it uh, that uh, that a different solicitor is possibly selected each time. So it's trying to uh, avoid any sort of bias in the process by operating in that way. Okay, and one of the first things we found was a lot of solicitors say that list isn't in place, not in use, not, not in, use. in use. Yeah, um, it's not in use consistently. I mean, some variants maybe across different stations and so on. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the general feeling that, that that list is not being used, that system is not being used. We even spoke to some solicitors that didn't even know the list existed. Further worrying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so what it where the list isn't being used, um, can you tell us a bit about how solicitors are being picked or what solicitors say yeah. is happening? Exactly. So it was the solicitors we were speaking to. So this is their perspective on it, I suppose. But uh, as you say, it's sort of some of them didn't even know that the list existed in certain stations uh, in one particular area of the country. They seem to have gotten together and uh, created the, the the local law association has created a list which they've made available to the local stations. Uh, and like like that, that list is maybe given to a suspect and they're told to, to pick a name off of the list. Uh, in other stations, there's a kind of a um, approach where you can just leave your business card and they sort of put it up on the wall. Um, and then it was, you know, some suggestion that maybe then a suspect was sort of given two or three cards and said, you know, pick off a one of those. But they weren't shown all of the cards that were possibly available. Um, so quite haphazard across the country. And, and you know, a further suggestion as well in talking to the solicitors where uh, even longstanding clients, yeah, they'd hear from them afterwards that they had been in the station uh, and the, the solicitors say, well, you know, why didn't you call me? And, uh, you know, some question being raised that the, the, this person says, well, I, I said to the guards that I'd like you uh, and that somebody else was suggested instead and that a different solicitor attended. So it's it, there does seem to be a, a difficulty there, like who is making the decision then? If you can't name a solicitor, or even if, maybe if, even if you have named one, uh, that an alternative suggestion is sometimes being made. Well, why don't you get this person or we can give this person a call for you? 
Yeah. yeah. Like there's there's one quote on that um, from the work. We've had situations where longstanding clients of ours have been provided a different solicitor. And we've had cases where they've actually asked for our office, have been given whoever, and we don't think any attempt was made to contact our office, which would be really worrying because you know, you are entitled to your choice of solicitor. Um, and if the guards are overriding that um, in some way, which is the concern that some solicitors were expressing, then that's really problematic. Yeah, because this is a, it's an important relationship, I think, between a suspect um, and, and their solicitor. You know, we're talking about how, how difficult it is to be someone who's under arrest in the station. And if you have a, a, a relationship existing already with a solicitor who you trust uh, you're going to listen to their advice. You're going to take their advice on board. You know, when, when a solicitors are called kind of out of the blue to somebody they don't already know, it they really put a lot of effort into trying to build a level of trust with that person um, so that the person will, will listen to them and take their advice and sort of calm the person in the circumstance that they're in. So it's an important relationship, I think. So if, if you were asking to see your particular solicitor who you've, you know, maybe met before and you've already got a relationship of trust, it's important that that, would, that request would be fulfilled. And there is, just to go back to the European Court of Human Rights, they also say there's a right to, to a solicitor of your choice. And yeah, and like some solicitor talked about a concern that if the guard is effectively choosing the solicitor, can you have that trust? Because is the person seen as being fully independent from the guards? Um you know, and solicitors having to explain, you know, even though the guards may have called me, I'm not a guard, a solicitor mm-hmm. um, and needing to to explain that. Um, yeah. And just to compare with other jurisdictions, there, there's a level of remove in operation in other jurisdictions where if you can't name your lawyer, let's say in Scotland, for example, um, the police have to ring a, a, a hotline as such and the hotline then selects the the lawyer who's going to attend so it's there's a level of uh, distance between the police and the decision as to which lawyer will attend I, I think that that's a a useful protection for everybody so there can be no question about yeah. the propriety of the decision and the suggestion as to who would attend because there are big questions about the propriety so in those instances where they're either you know only giving them two or three of the business cards or not using the list or overriding a choice. The concern that solicitors expressed to us, and this is their view, you know, and we didn't speak to guards as part of this project. That wasn't what the project was about. But they are concerned that the guards have favourite solicitors that they're using um, and that they're tending to call. Yeah, I mean, some of the, some of the solicitors we spoke to said that their firm's never or hardly ever get a call out of the blue. It's it's all existing clients uh, who come back to them. Whereas you would expect if this is being done in a fairly sort of random, you know, this is the next person on the list kind of manner, it should be relatively uh, uh, you know spread around as to who would get the calls out of the blue. And um, so, yeah, we tried to get a sense when we were talking to the solicitors as to why they thought they weren't getting calls or what, what was the impression they were getting. And some of that was based on things that their clients had said to them, you know, that I did ask for you, but somebody else was contacted instead. Um, And there was a a feeling amongst the solicitors that maybe if they were the type of solicitor who would really stand up for their clients' uh, rights in custody, who would object to inappropriate questions being put to their client and so on, uh, that they might not get, um, uh, that they might not get a call. So uh, I'll give you one, one quote there. Uh, some stations prefer some solicitors over others. They might have a perception of how that solicitor might approach the case. They might look at me and look at my client and say, we know no comment will be the result of this. Therefore, we're not going to call him. I have been told by a guard we might call this solicitor because we know he might be more inclined to go guilty with his client. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's pretty worrying if, if that's what's going on. And even more, and so that's talking about how the solicitor is going to behave in the interview and whether they're going to kind of maybe Im- from the guarder perspective impede the flow of it but others took it even more basically so one solicitor said to us perhaps certain lawyers wouldn't be contacted because a they mightn't attend a guard station or b if they do attend they may not be in a position to provide attendance on a detention all the way through 
So others believe it's because there's someone who'll just, you know, take a phone call and have their bit, but not actually show up at the station. Um, so there's different reasons, isn't there, why people think the guards have their favourites, as it were. Yeah. And obviously, though, those are not reasons that should be taken into account when, when a solicitor is being contacted on behalf of somebody. You know, the question as to whether is, is this the type of solicitor who's likely to come and sit in the interview or not? That shouldn't be uh, part of the decision making, uh, you know, unless it's that you really want to ensure that somebody will sit in on the interview. It's nobody should be selected on the basis that they probably won't. I have one other uh, quote I might just share. Uh, from, Can I just from say, but research. yeah, just like there is a point in that because what they did find was that certain really specialized you what we found <laughs> was that certain really specialized units like there was evidence of solicitors saying you know in particular cases they seem to know that they'll be better off if there's a solicitor and, and they will call one um so for units are dealing with children so you know some guardy actually fully realized and appreciated the need for a guard in the interview um and sought a kind of solicitor that would do that yeah, that, that's true. And as you say, with the more specialised units uh, and the Gardaí who are trained to the higher level of the Gardaí interview model and so on. Uh, and they also recognise the sort of the general point that having the solicitor in the room is not just a protection of the suspect of the suspect's rights. Uh, to some extent, it's a protection of the whole process um, in that the solicitor is there and can object to things which are maybe happening uh, and have an opportunity for things to be done in a better way than they might otherwise uh, be done. So it's really to the benefit of um, the whole process to have the solicitor present in the room, really. You know, it's harder to raise objections to things that happened at interview afterwards if the yeah. solicitor was there. But it really was quite striking how many said, I don't get called that often because I take that robust approach, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, some of them were, were sort of almost proud of the fact, I mean, it was almost proof to them that they do advocate very well for their clients, the idea that they wouldn't get called. I'll give you that quote that I was yeah. going to give you there. So one solicitor said, I think there are solicitors who will say mass for the guards and they'll be phoned by the guards so they won't kick up a fuss in the guard station. I wouldn't kick up a fuss in a guard station, but I will object to unreasonable questions. I will protect my client's interests. I will ensure my client makes an informed choice and knows his or her options. And if I have to unfortunately have a difficult discussion with a guard or a member in charge, I'll have it. So I won't be phoned by the guards because that's the type of work that I do. There are certain solicitors who will be phoned because they won't do that. And they're known for saying mass for the guards. I and enjoy the is... imagery of saying mass for the guards. But the points made there are really, really important. And what you know goes to what the role of the solicitor is in, in the context of guarded detention Um. And also, I mean, it, there, there is reference there as well to solicitors who, who are not doing that. Uh, that's the other point, I suppose, is that not every solicitor is actively engaging in the process and, um, you know, protecting their clients' rights to the nth degree. I mean, there, there were some suggestions and, and there are suggestions in the research that on occasion there may be, like some solicitors express the belief that maybe other solicitors were given the guards gifts to make sure that they got um, the phone calls or that there were kind of mutually beneficial arrangements in terms of ensuring that they got certain legal aid payments or this kind of thing. I mean, there were allegations that border on corruption, but, you know, we, we can't prove or establish that. And, and even without that, this level of interference with what should be the client's choice by the guards um, because it may, might, in their views, make their job a bit easier um, would be really, really worrying and problematic. Yeah, yeah. And there was also the suggestion you know, that maybe it's kind of people who play football together at the weekend who just happen yeah. to know each other, that sort of thing. But again, that, that shouldn't be any part of uh, this process. You know, the, the process of selecting a solicitor to attend at the guard station uh, should be above reproach, I think, because again, just to go back to how important a right it is um, and how important this moment in the criminal justice system is for, for the whole legitimacy of the system and for, for the whole progress of a particular case. And um, so, you know, whatever the reasons are, like if, if a list system was being used in a random selection manner as the Law Society system is supposed to be used, these questions couldn't really be be asked as such. Yeah, and, and and this is you know not purely to 
criticize the guards at all because this is the system they find themselves in and it's not regulated. Um, but it's also a comment on a, on other solicitors who, you know, maybe aren't taking the role as seriously or who aren't, you know, attending. Um, and we had we had one solicitor comment, you know, everyone's a winner here other than the client. Um, and that's important to bear in mind in this, I think. Yeah, the client is the one in, in the vulnerable position. The client is the person under arrest with charges, they possibly facing charges with maybe evidence being put to them and they don't know how to react to that. Um, and so it, it, it's, it's essential. We're talking about the, the procedural uh, rights of the, the suspect in, in the process. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's really important that this, this would all start on the right footing. And just to say as well that, you know, solicitors told us that they were able to see in court, let's say, you know, the following week when when people would be brought to the court, they could see which solicitors were representing the court that corresponds to a particular guard station. So it was possible for them also to sort of this was a, a level of, of proof, I suppose, to some extent that their feeling that they weren't getting calls from a particular station and that somebody else uh, was getting most of those calls or getting a lot of calls to that station. Their feeling was borne out uh, in seeing that uh, in this particular court where the cases of that particular station come through, yes, it is often the same solicitors again and again. And another solicitor was able to point to the fact that they were on um, a similar kind of randomised list that operates for immigration detention. And they regularly and randomly got calls from that but very freak very rarely got calls from the guard station list so they felt these lists weren't equivalent there was something very different happening in the guard station space yeah and i think it was it was you know really good to i mean in terms of us verifying what the solicitors were saying yeah. it was good to to get that information and to get the information about the, the courtrooms which correspond with the stations uh, because it, this isn't just a feeling that the solicitors have, you know, they, they are able to verify it uh, through looking in, in comparisons like that. Um, and so it is, it's a difficulty in the system. And as I say, you know, as we were saying at the start, this, this all sort of happened overnight, uh, the fact of being in the interview. But since the mid 80s, solicitors have actually been attending at the station. Uh, so this this issue of how you select a solicitor is, is much uh, longer established issue. It's not just about the solicitor attending in the interview, which is a more recent uh, occurrence. And like contextually, again, this can really play on, you know, the vulnerability that anyone who is detained is experiencing in that moment. Because, you know, what we know, and this is proven in research overseas, but also what everyone says in the Irish context, when people are detained, what they want most of all is to get out of there. They want yeah. to get the hell out of the garden station and they want to get home. They don't want to be there. And they will often make short-term decisions. So they're not thinking about the longer term. They're not thinking, when this gets to court, I'd be better off if I've had the lawyer in the interview with me. They are just thinking, what's going to be quickest? And mm -hmm. so if the guards are saying, oh, well, I can call that, that solicitor now, but he'll take an hour or two to get here, um, you know, that can really influence the decision that the detainee makes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, an awful lot of people who, who are in detention, they, they just want to get out for, for a variety of reasons, whether it's because of some sort of addiction reason or because they just feel so uncomfortable in the position that they're in or they have other responsibilities and so on like that. They just want to get out and, and, and it can be very difficult, the solicitors have told us, difficult to help that person to focus on the fact that, you know, what happens here in the station over the next couple of hours is one thing, but it could have serious long-term consequences later on so you know you need to focus on the now not on just getting out so if there's ever a kind of a suggestion that you know there'll be a delay in getting the solicitor or you know maybe you don't need a solicitor at all we can deal with this quite quickly and uh, release you um that 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 does play on the mind of uh, people who are in the difficult position of being detained um and and it is difficult again because particularly in relation to attending the interviews, difficult for the solicitors actually to arrange their time. If they're, you know, let's say they're in court at half 10 in the morning and they get a phone call from the station saying there's somebody here uh, under arrest. Obviously, the detention clock is ticking from the Garda perspective. They can't hold the person for forever. 
So they do need the solicitor to come within a reasonable period of time. But the solicitor wasn't expecting this arrest to happen. So it can be difficult. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the solicitor is the one who, if it's one of their clients, let's say, or if they're going to call out of the blue, they need to arrange their time appropriately. Then it, it's not for the guard to prejudge that and to say, oh, if we ring that person, they're probably in court or, you know, they probably won't be able to come or it's a Saturday morning. They might be out with their kids or whatever. You know, the, the decision needs to be made on on an um, objective basis, on a random basis, really, if the if the uh, person can't name a solicitor um, or or else the uh, clients, the suspects in the station need to somehow be given a greater level of information about the solicitors they're being asked to choose from. So to say, well, look, here's the list and we can give you some piece of information instead of just names or you know, I have heard in the past as well about people who sort of handed the phone book and say, pick a solicitor out of that. You know, it's not really fair to a suspect to expect them to 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 know themselves either on what basis to to pick someone where they haven't an existing relationship. And some solicitors had like the view that this should be evidenced that the, that the detainee is making that. So thinking about reforms and how it could do better, um, some were really keen on this, that this be, you know, that the detainee has like had that choice, that that should be reflected in some way. So one of the suggestions we made kind of trying to tie all of this together is that you could, and I think quite easily, you could have a system operating in a guard station where in one corner there is, you know, an iPad or, or a computer um, which has this list um, and that, you know, under CCTV, the detainee um, gets to make that selection. Um, I mean, you could go super fancy and even say, let's have the solicitors upload like one minute videos um, where the person kind of gets a sense of like, because at the moment they're just picking a name and they know very little about this person. And it's, you know, it's picking between Joe Bloggs, John Bloggs and Joanna Bloggs, you know, Um, whereas if you can um, maybe hear the sound of their voice or just hear what they have to say for themselves, that that might aid with the decision. But I suppose the really important point is about choice um, and having that um, recorded or documented in some way. Yeah, and enabling the suspect to be the one really making the choice because you can imagine just, you know, the sort of reality of it all. You can imagine a suspect who doesn't know what solicitor to call and the guard is there showing them the list, let's say, and the guy, the suspect is saying, I don't know who to call. Who do you think I should call? So, I mean, that does put the guard in a difficult position. The guard is being asked for who he should call, but we need to sort of regularize the system so that the guard can say, it's not appropriate for me yeah. to advise you who to yeah. call. Here's the list uh, or, you know, here's the iPad or whatever it is. Uh, that's all I can do for you. All these people are practicing solicitors. They practice in the area of criminal law. You know, you're going to have to pick one of those on your own. So enable the suspect to do it. And I think it's in Belgium. They have uh, they have a system not quite as snazzy as the the iPad uh, plan that we, we were thinking about. Um, but they do have a system where the solicitor is on their end can update their availability yeah. say two or three days in advance. They can say, you know, let's say I've got a big trial coming on. I'm not available for the next four or five days. They can set that. And you could link that up to the system as well so that, that people can block out their time, um, uh, you know, if, if that's uh, something that they want to do on their side. So it, it, there's and certainly I, better ways of doing this. And that, and that is important that solicitors are reasonable in terms of this because the guards are operating under a time pressure and detainees do want to get home. So, you know, if it is going to take them a few hours to get there, then, you know, they should be passing it over. To, arguably, um, now there are times when a solicitor has an expertise that's really, really needed and maybe you do want to wait for that expertise. Um, but it's about reasonableness on all parts and really just promoting the detainees' rights. Yeah. And also to say that where it's possible to schedule an arrest and interview, I think there should be maybe more of that happening so that, again, everyone can plan for it. Uh, the, the the suspect, the guardie and the, um, and the yeah. solicitor, obviously on occasion, uh, there will have to be an immediate arrest. Something is happening. Someone is, is found at the scene and the, the arrest happens immediately or there's, you know, a concern around, um, uh, you know, flight risk or something like that. But Actually, on, on a lot of occasions, arrests can be uh, arranged 
Um, and that allows everyone to organize their time. And maybe you know, if, if a suspect doesn't have a solicitor for them to do a little bit of research themselves to see who they might uh, who they might select and so on. Uh, so there, there are again, it's these little things that they seem like little things but in the process, but actually they could make the whole system work better for everyone. And again, you know, with the guards uh, where I, I see that they could be put in that position where they're asked for their advice, we need to make the system work so that they can say, no, it's not appropriate for me to give give that advice. There's a system. This is the system. Let's use the system. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, we're we're going to move on and talk about another bit of work you've been involved in, which is called the uh, the wonderfully titled Emprise Project, um, which is about the right to silence when you're in an interview. Um, tell yeah. us a bit about the project and what that right is about. I will. Um, yeah, this is a, a EU funded project I'm working on at the moment. Uh, DCU. Uh, are the Irish partners in this project, um, along with the University of Maastricht, uh, the University of Antwerp and KU Leuven. And we're looking at the right to remain silent in police interrogations uh, in Ireland, the Netherlands, Belgium and in Italy. Uh, And also looking at, I suppose, how that plays out later in the system, either where you've answered questions or where you haven't answered questions. Um, and it's yes, it's called Emprise. The EMP part of that is to do with empirical evidence, uh, which uh, empirical research, which we've been doing on this. So we started out by doing a legal study of each of the jurisdictions, uh, first of all, to see what is the law in relation to the right to silence. And then we've been doing empirical research. So in Ireland, we've spoken to a, a total of 50 people working in the criminal justice system across the project. So before everything got shut down in Ireland in early March 2020, uh, we had two focus groups with criminal defence solicitors. Uh, we had 19 solicitors in total in that. Uh, and since then, we had to move everything to individual online uh, interviews or some interviews on the phone as well. So we've spoken to 10 barristers in criminal practice, a mixture of defence and prosecution experience there, 11 staff from the DPP's office, uh, four judges, two from the Circuit Criminal Court and two from the Central Criminal Court who also have experience in the Special Criminal Court. Uh, and we've spoken to six uh, retired Gardaí who retired uh, in the last four or five years. Um, so we've tried to sort of look at all of the issues. Um, we weren't able to speak to um, former suspects, which was something we had hoped to do as well. And the other issue which really needs research on this uh, at some other point is jury research. Um, which would be great. Obviously, we're constrained in what you can do in terms of that. Uh, but in particular, in relation to to try to figure out what juries think if there is a piece of evidence on the prosecution side and no response to that, let's say, on the defence side or an inference is being drawn. So, yeah, that was some of the issues that we were looking at. So you do have a right to remain silent uh, under questioning in the Garda station, a constitutional right to remain silent. Um, but it's not an absolute right. It, it can be interfered with. And in Ireland, at one point, we um, brought in offences specifically based on silence. So your failure to answer a particular question was an offence in and of itself, chargeable, uh, even if you weren't charged with the offence for which you were originally arrested. But the European Court of Human Rights uh, wasn't impressed by that and thought that that was too much of an interference with the privilege against self-incrimination. So although some of those offences still exist, um, uh, and I think there's a few of those actually included in the COVID regulations as well, a failure to account for where you're you're going. Um, but generally, we've moved away from those and we've moved to use more so these inference drawing provisions where if a particular question is put to you uh, under a particular piece of legislation in Garda interview and you fail to answer that question, the jury at trial can be invited to draw an inference from that failure to answer the question. Um, and I mean, we don't clarify to juries exactly what we mean by, you know, what inference are they to draw? So there's a number of different ones, but ultimately, I mean, the inference is that you don't have an innocent explanation and, and that you're therefore guilty. We've been looking at all of that, yeah. Um, can you talk about the findings of yet or...? Yeah, we're we're ju- we're still we're coming towards the end of the project, so we're we're putting all the findings and recommendations and so on together. Um, but it's it's been a really interesting project, I have to say. Um, and it it touches on other issues. Some of what we've been talking about there, it's really linked to the right to legal assistance as well. Uh, and one interesting thing has been the discussion with the solicitors around how they come to their advice. Uh, in particular case, when when discussing it with with the detained client, let, let's say in the interview. 
Um, and a couple of interesting things coming out of that. Um, one is there's different categories of cases, different ways in which things play out. Um, you know, and you've kind of a feeling, I think there's a feeling out there, maybe again, it's just watching too much of the bill, but I think there's a feeling out there that the solicitors are always likely to advise their client to remain silent, no matter what. And that's not actually the case. I mean, it's much more nuanced than that. Solicitors are involved in, in taking so many different factors into account in the advice that they give to their client. In certain types of cases, uh, it's, it, silence is almost never advised. So, for example, in, in sex offence cases, particularly where there's an issue around consent, uh, the suspect is uh, usually better advised to put their account um, on record at an early point. Um, in other types of cases, it's very unlikely that the accused person themselves is going to answer, answer any questions, uh, including in like organized crime cases and cases involving subversive crime. Now, just to touch on that issue for a minute, it's really interesting, um, a discussion I had with one of the retired Gardaí lately in relation to this, um, is there is an, an understanding, I suppose, sometimes the reason that someone is not answering questions uh, is nothing to do with what's going on in the station, but everything to do with what's outside the station. And that, the, the, they're, you know, if, if you are even, let's say, on the periphery of uh, sort of organized criminality or on the periphery of um, unlawful organizations, that sort of thing, and you're brought into the station, you know, you'll be interviewed in the station, but you'll be interviewed again outside the station afterwards um, by by the, the crime boss, let's say. Uh, to, to get to the bottom of what you said and what you didn't say in the station. So oftentimes the reason that someone is not answering the questions is because if it's found out that they answered any questions or engaged with the guards at all, they will be in, uh, you know, their life will be in danger as such and the lives of their family will be in danger. And so what I worry about in that context is attaching some evidential weight to that silence then and saying to the jury or to the special criminal court, you know, this person didn't answer this particular question. And allowing that silence to be part of the reason that they're convicted, where where that silence is not necessarily based on guilt, is maybe based on on fear. Because the last thing they're yeah. going to do is mention, "No, I'm being intimidated, and I'm not going to answer that." Well, this is it. And how how can they? Like they they, they obviously can't say that either. It's not safe, and we don't either want people to be having off the record conversations with with Gardi. You know that that's not appropriate from another perspective. So, you know, it, it's really difficult to, to navigate that particular um, issue. And it seems to be a kind of an issue that, you know, the, it's, it's understood that that could be a, an issue. But how do we actually how do we actually uh, deal with it? Um, and I was looking at the special criminal court in particular recently in relation to this and the inferences that can be drawn there on, on an offensive membership. Uh, and it just to, I mean, not to get too technical about the whole thing, but the actual legislation on that is quite different to the legislation, uh, the inference drawing legislation on other things, uh, where it seems that, you know, it's uh, in the ordinary run of things, you know, you have to maybe, you'll have to account for the substance on your person, like a piece of evidence will be put to you and you will be asked for your response to it. Uh, whereas um, uh, the inference provisions, which can be used on the charge of membership, at least in their legislative form, are looser than that. Like you could be asked to account, give a full account of your movements and actions during a particular period of time. But, you know, it's not necessarily, at least in the legislation, like it may be operating differently. And I'm talking to the judges in the special, they do seem to operate it a little more closely than this. But in the legislation, at least, it's not saying, you know, we have CCTV evidence of you in a particular yeah. place, explain why you were there. It's rather give us an account of your movements. Whereas just to, you know, to put it in the broader context, the whole reason that we have protection for the right to remain silent is because it's an element of the presumption of innocence and that uh, everyone is presumed, presumed innocent until the prosecution prove that they are guilty. And it's not up to you to prove your innocence. So it's it's a really interesting uh, topic, but it's it's um, it's deeper. There are more aspects to it even than I realized <laughs> when embarking on the, on the research project uh, as part of it. 
And it is, I mean, there's a lot of psychology and everything in there and it is an interdisciplinary team that's looking at it. Um, But that, yeah, there's huge human psychology interplaying with that. Um, You have some, I know you're doing training with solicitors next month, but you also have some uh, webinars coming up, don't you? We do. There are webinars uh, at the end of June. If anyone is interested, they're more than happy to uh, get in touch with me and I'll send them the links. There are webinars which will bring together the research across the different jurisdictions, which will be really interesting as well. We've already written one uh, article on the law across the different jurisdictions within the human rights uh, law review Uh, and it's interesting that uh, in let's say in the Netherlands there's no legislative provision for inferences to be drawn from silence but it seems to be happening in the case law anyway and these are are, are non-jury cases um, which is the the norm really in, in the Dutch system but the, the the inferences are being drawn from silence without the legislative protections. So to some extent, you know, it's, it seems to me a pity that we have these legislative inferences, uh, inference provisions, but they also include a lot of safeguards in that the person must have it explained to them in ordinary language, the possible consequences if they don't answer a question in the Garda interview, it has to have been video recorded, they must have had an opportunity to speak to their legal advisor about the inferences and so on. So at, at least we have those protections. Like it's a double-edged sword because by enhancing those protections as the legislature did in 2007, it actually breathed some life into the inference provisions. They hadn't been used all that often before. We gave them safeguards and now they're used uh, somewhat more often, though still not maybe as often as you might think. Um, and on the other hand, then in the Dutch system, the inferences are still being drawn, but there's no requirement, for example, to tell the accused in the station that, uh, you know, something you fail to mention now that could result in adverse consequences for you later. So maybe to some extent by having it in our legislation, there's actually a benefit to that in terms of the protection of suspect rights. And I, you know, I do know, like from our conversations with solicitors, like it's all one thing to be attending the interview but the second there's an inference involved, it's a whole other ball game, and they take that incredibly seriously. Um, and it's yeah, it's and it goes back to the earlier point about the need for good trained um, solicitors um, to be advising and attending these interviews. Um, mm-hmm. It really is so important. Absolutely, and and there's a recognition I think of how important the inference interviews are as well, because the practice has developed that. Um, when a person is first arrested, and this is partly because we haven't updated the caution, the traditional caution as well. Uh, when a person is first arrested, there'll maybe be two or three or four even interviews, sort of ordinary interviews held. And if the person is not answering questions in those, then a whole separate inference interview is held uh, at the end of the process. Um, so they're much more likely to be held in, in serious uh, offences or indeed in organised crime offences because there's a longer detention period. So there's more time in which to administer them. So they take a bit of, of time to administer and explain and so on as well. Um, so, and it's it's within the, the Garda Code of Practice that I mentioned earlier, makes specific provision for disclosure prior to the inference uh, interviews where a lot more information needs to be given to the solicitor and to the, to the suspect in advance to say, you know, these are the items of evidence we will be putting to them. In fact, sometimes they, they tell the solicitors in advance, these are the questions that are going to be put in the inference interview. Um, as so that the accused can be properly advised in relation to that um, specifically. So that's the practice which has sort of developed. Um, there's one issue which is of interest actually, which uh, has come up in our in our research, is how the inference provisions are explained to accused and detained people. And I think the guards have gone to a lot of trouble to develop sort of ordinary language uh, explanations, but there's a concern that they're not actually explaining it quite accurately. So I'll just give you one example. One example which is given to the accused is to explain what is an inference. Um, And in this context, an inference from silence. The example is given that if you come into a room uh, where there's a chocolate cake on the table and a slice of chocolate cake is missing and there's a child standing beside the table with chocolate all around their mouth, you can infer that the child has eaten the slice of cake. But some of the solicitors that we spoke to for this uh, right to silence research said that that's not what's going on with an inference from silence, though. You know, that that's a factual inference there. You can see the chocolate on the child's face. But the legal inference from silence is if you then asked the child, you know, can you account for the chocolate around your mouth? And they said, you know, no comment, or they didn't answer the question. 
that's where the inference is being drawn from in, in, in the in the scenario of an inference from silence. Um, uh, but that's not exactly the explanation which is being given. So, so some of those things might need to be reviewed and, and revisited just to make sure. And interesting studies have been done in, in England and Wales in relation to detainees' understanding of the inference provisions. Uh, and again, look, it goes, it's also part of the function of the solicitor to try to explain that to them as well, which, which can be difficult to do, but goes again to the importance of having a solicitor if you are. Uh, yeah. And I mean, you know, guards and solicitors say this all the time. That it's so hard to explain this stuff. And it's just, it is really, I mean, as you say, it's good to have the safeguards and that that's a benefit of having the legislation. But if you have a whole thing that has serious consequences for someone and you can't even explain it to them clearly um, when they're in, you know, added to the fact they're in, in a guard interview, it's stressful and surreal and horrible. Um, you know, that's just, it's, it's problematic. Um, so I'm really looking forward to, um, I'm all signed up for those webinars and and I'm looking forward to, um, hearing more about the project, um, as it disseminates. And we'll also be, um, you know, publishing more on, on the interviews we did with the 44 solicitors. We have another piece coming out on on interpreters, but that's a whole other podcast on a whole other day. Um, but thank you so much, um, Yvonne, for joining us to talk about these issues that I think, you know, we don't get to think about on an everyday basis um, in Ireland. It's always something just that, you know, it'll only arise if the need occurs. Um, but it's important for people to understand how all of this is going. So I really appreciate you taking the time out to talk to all of us over here at Police to the Beat. Um, and I'm sure we'll have you on again at another time. Thanks very much. I love talking about these issues. They're They're important issues. And as you say, you don't want to wait until a crisis arises to, to look at them. And there are issues as well that people working in the process, you know, maybe have become used to or, or they just sort of accept them and just know that that's the way things are. But uh, until someone comes along and says, you know, why is it why is it operating this way? Could it be done a different way? You know, the, the issues sort of just bubble on. So I, I'm more than happy to discuss uh, uh, on this occasion and any future occasion. Thanks, Vicky. Thank you. Um, Police in Ireland, the series will be uh, returning in late May with our uh, first hand experiences um, people are having of the the guards in Ireland. And I'm also going to be doing a lot of episodes through the beat, looking at the new policing security and community safety bill, which is really important. We're going to break that down, take it step by step with different um, with different experts on different topics. Um, Johnny Connolly is lined up to talk to us about community safety. Um, and Lord David Anderson, um, former um, inspector of um, terrorism legislation in the UK, is also going to talk to us about the equivalent role that's being created in Ireland. So loads coming up on the beat. Um, thank you for supporting us at Patreon.com. Um, and we'll speak to you again soon. <laughs>